it's Thursday, January 25th, 2024. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight, we will continue the periodic presentation of my magical adventure novel, The Tomb of Prester John, with a dramatic reading of Chapter 7 and 8, The Revelations of Jezebel and the Subterranean World. This is a tale of magic, adventure, and intrigue with archaeologists Marion Doc Rowland and Sophia Skondar searching for the lost tomb of Crusader-era warrior-priest king Prester John, whose vast treasure could tip the balance of world finance. Doc and Sophie battle terrorists and satanic cultists in the underground cities of Turkey as they solve the mystery of a mysterious lamp of truth. So, stay with us, tune in, and enjoy old-fashioned high adventure. Now, to make this a little clearer, I'm going to read the first, uh, reread the first uh, uh, summary that uh, we did back when we first presented this about back two years ago. The Tomb of Prester John is a new magical no- adventure novel by Hermetic uh, Hour host Poke Runyon. And the protagonist of the story is the same Indiana Jonesish anthropologist Poke created and portrayed in his film Beyond Lemuria, where we saw Doc Rowland exploring the ruined city of Nanmadol. In this new adventure, Rowland and his beautiful belly dancing psychic lady and archaeologist Sophie Iskandar go in search of the fabulous tomb of the legendary medieval priest king, Prester John. They have a 12th century letter written by Prester John to Emperor Frederick Barbarossa and an antique magic lantern to decode the script. They know the tomb is located somewhere in eastern Turkey, but Sophie must evoke the prophetess Jezebel in a full moon ritual dance. Throughout their adventure, they are stalked by Sophie's former lover, Khalil Ibn Iblis, a terrorist who believes he is the reincarnation of Hassan Saba and has revived uh, Saba's medieval cult of the assassins. As the tale progresses, we will air it chapter by chapter on the Hermetic Hour. So if you want to get in at the beginning, stay tuned in and get ready for High Adventure. Now, that was the first, the first summary. And what we're going to do now is we're going, to, we're going to pick this up halfway through Chapter 6 so you can get some continuity. And this is very important, this, this section, because when Sophie channels... She's going to channel Jezebel from the Book of Revelations, the pagan prophetess, who is actually Mary Magdalene. And uh, this, of course, is a problem for Sophie because um, Sophie has had a former kind of a dark past as a, a scarlet woman for an OTO lodge up in San Francisco. And Khalil, her Persian boyfriend, she's from Lebanon originally, and Khalil, her Persian boyfriend, has had her hypnotized 
He's the head of the, the, this Maverick OTO Lodge. We cover the split in the OTO when, uh, which occurred in the 1980s. And this is a Maverick OTO Lodge. And, and uh, Khalil is the lodge master and, and Sophie is the scarlet woman. And, you know, she's the one who appears nude in the Gnostic Masters. He has her channeling Helen, Simon Magus's lady from the time of, of Christ. Sophie breaks off, breaks away from Khalil, who is becoming very evil, and she breaks away from him. And she ends up uh, becoming a Valentinian Christian, and she, and she channels Mary Magdalene. And she doesn't know. Now, Sophie doesn't know who she is or who she was. Was she Helen or was she Mary Magdalene? That's that's one of the key things here that we uh, that we're going to deal with in this chapter. So that makes it very very applicable to the Hermetic Hour. So let's get them all the way from Germany where they pick up the letter, Prester John's letter, and of course they have the lamp of truth, this this magic lantern thing that they're going to be using, and uh, they have the letter from Prester John. The letter was delivered in the 11th century, back in the time of the Crusades, and Prester John sent three identical copies of the letter, one to the Pope, one to Frederick Barbarossa, Emperor of Germany, and the third to the Emperor of Byzantium. And Sophie and, and, and Doc have gotten the German letter, and they got the German letter, and they have that, and they have the Lamp of Truth, and they're going... They're going to Theatria, where the church was, Jezebel's church was in the book of Revelation, and they're going to go in the catacombs, and then she's going to do this, this sacred dance. They're at the museum, that is the, the museum that's right next to the uh, ruins of the church, and they're talking to uh, the lady that is Ionia, who is uh, the lady at the museum, and she's an Armenian Christian, but, but it, of course, it is a Turkish museum. And Ionia led them to a case displaying a bronze statuette of a horseman with a double-headed uh, battle axe looming over the figure of a goddess, which she identified as Borathene, a counterpart of the Phoenician Astarte, patron goddess of the purple Murex divers, so Murex dyers, Sophie commented. Turkish red versus Phoenician purple. Sophie aimed her camera at the display. Is that what you're researching, Dr. Skandar? Iona asked. The whole history of Phoenician influence in Anatolia, Sophie replied. Perfectly symbolized in these beautiful earrings, Dr., Iona said. Sophie smiled in reply. I'm glad you liked them. I thought they were appropriate for the occasion. Before they had visited all 11 rooms of the museum, Doc suggested setting out for the church and the catacombs. The ancient ruins of the church were visible through a clutter of broken pillars and building stones. Huge walls of ritual rock monitored, mortared together with a small vaulted entrance, a door frame with no door. You'll need lights, Iona said. I've got headlamps in the pack. But this will have to do for now, Doc said, clicking on a powerful tactical flashlight, illuminating a vast, bare interior. That stairwell over there by the north wall leads down to the catacombs, Iona told them. I'll have to leave you now. Please check back with me at the museum when you return. And please photograph artifacts in situ and let us fo photocopy your notes. Iona, thank you so very much for your help, Sophie said. 
I would like to give you something in return. Would you like these earrings of mine? They were not expensive, but they would look good on you. Oh, I couldn't, she stammered, but Sophie was already pinning them on. Thank you, Dr. Iskander. I will treasure them. Sophie gave her a hug, and they parted. Ione Erzan made her way back toward the museum while Doc was getting the headlamps out of his rucksack. The stairwell led down to a wide vaulted gallery with walls that had once been decorated with frescoes, which had since been defaced and overlaid with graffiti. The artwork had been Byzantine style, showing the haloed Christ and a priestess, obviously a sacred marriage. Sophie said as she took the panorama of flash photos, it would take six months' work down here to restore this. The vandalism was probably done after Revelation was circulated, Doc suggested. Now what are we looking for? The tomb of Theotis, she said, gesturing to a dark archway. The vandals might have desecrated it, but I don't think they would have destroyed it. First, they'd have to find it, and it's probably hidden, but I know where to look. How much you know about the historical Theotis, Doc asked. That's what we'll find out tonight with the aid of the lamp of truth and a full moon, she replied. I meant how much does Dr. Sophie Iskandar know about Theotis, physician and the philosopher from Latiosia, here in Anatolia. He converted to Christianity and joined the Latiosian church mentioned in Revelation. He knew Paul and in later life monitored young Valentinius. He eventually became the bishop of Theatria. He was the lover and the sponsor of Jezebel. Doc glanced at his watch. It was seven o'clock already. Let's try to find the tomb before the moon rises. And speaking of that, how are we going to see the moon down here in the underworld? There is a gallery with a natural skylight, she said, perfect for a sacred dance. Two hours later, they found the tomb of Theotis. The entrance had been plastered over and marked with his monogram, a letter T in a Christian fish symbol. Sophie photoed the monograph before Doc attacked the plaster with his hunting knife, revealing a stone, a stone sarcophagus with Theodius' effigy carved on the lid. They slid the lid off with a terrible squeaking sound. The mummified nude body was intact. The skin shriveled and dark brown. The skull seemed covered with wrinkled parchment. The eyes, empty eye sockets were filled with polished crystal balls, which shone in the light from their headlamps. But the most surprising thing about this corpse was, it, was its erect genitalia. That is not natural, Doc said. The corpse was prepared that way. For a reason, Sophie murmured. Her eyes were wide and blank stare. She was in trance. She raised her hands in the ancient adoration gesture and chanted, then reached down into the coffin, lifted the phallus up to eye level as she whispered, Isis, Sophophis, Osiris. Doc stood in amazement. What are we in for tonight, he wondered, as a fleeting vision of necromantic sex magic flashed in the right hemisphere of his brain. Put that back the way it was, lady. I'm the only one shagging you tonight, he said in a firm voice. Sophie complied with obvious reluctance. 
The mummified palace had been reinforced with a bone rod which kept it erect. Several photos of Theotis before replacing it, the lid on the sarcophagus and returning the coffin to its niche. I'm going to suggest to the museum that they reseal that tomb, Doc said. That creature is dangerous. He's not a creature, Sophie said. That was Theotis, not the Frankenstein's monster. Ah, oh, sweet mystery of life, I found you, Doc sang off key, thinking of the Mel Brooks film. Can't you take anything seriously, she huffed. Sometimes it's better not to, he responded. It got you out of it, that trance state. I'm going to need that trance state tonight. Oh, I'm sure you'll manage it, Doc, Doc muttered. By 8.30, they had found the gallery, a large vaulted chamber with a smooth dirt floor pooled in the light of the rising moon, which shone down through a 20-foot-wide hole in the roof. The fallen debris from the roof had piled up against the wall. By the time Sophie and Doc had set up for the channeling session, Sophie's dance, the moon was shining directly in through the skylight. The lamp of truth was lit and revolving, casting patterns of light on the walls, and Sophie's tape recorder was ready to play belly dancing music. Doc had also laid out a blanket and rolled his jacket up as a pillow. He placed his pistol and flashlight in easy reach in case of intruders. Sophie was taking her clothes off. Wearing only bells on her ankles and zills on her fingers, she approached him carrying a flask of scented oil. Anoint me, she commanded. My pleasure, Doc said, and poured oil in his palms. As he massaged her from head to foot, he felt her body heat rising. He took his hands away, and he could still feel the heat radiating from her. She stepped back and raised her hands to the moon. O triune goddess, come unto me. Indwell in this body I offer to thee. Grant me the knowings from all that you see. Tell me the past, from what I have been. Give me your secrets of what is to be. At her signal, Doc turned on the tape recorder, and the Dumbeckies began their staccato beat. She whirled and pranced in the center of the lunar spotlight. The moonlight shone on her body, enhanced with the patterns of light projected by the lamp of truth. She did the traditional belly dancing floor work with her ninth gate facing Doc, who reminded himself that the routine was supposed to symbolize childbirth, not the, not the invitation to create one. Sophie was working herself into a mystic trance state in which sexual stimulation was part of the induction. Her hands moved across her body, exploring erogenous zones with shameless abandon. Doc had to admit it was certainly arousing, but Sophie's channeling trance wasn't all that was being inspired. Doc was now almost certain that he knew the secret of the lamp of truth. The flickering light patterns on Sophie's tattoos gave him the inspiration. The truth was in the lamp, not in the projections. The recorded music was reaching a climax, and Sophie seemed to be in sync with it. She went down on her knees and then collapsed in Doc's embrace. Take me, she demanded in a husky voice, followed by another sound that had Doc reaching for his pistol. Applause. Several people were clapping. Bravo, somebody shouted. It's Khalil, Sophie stammered. Bright lights shone on them from outside the pool of luminar 
lunar illumination. A short burst from a submachine gun chattered at them while the rounds peppered the wall behind them, a warning shot. Put down the gun, Roland, the voice commanded. Doc complied, putting his browning in easy reach. Now stand up and drop your pants, Khalil ordered. Doc stood up and helped Sophie to her feet. Get dressed, he told her. You stay as you are, darling, Khalil countered. If the professor won't serve you, we will. A fully peripheral lantern now illuminated the entire scene. There were three of Khalil's Palestinians, all armed with submachine guns. One of them had a knife to, to Iona Erzan's throat. The hiss of the hiss of the time fuse galvanized, galvanized Doc into action. He seized Sophie and brought her down in the blanket. The ear-splitting crack and blinding flash of the flashbang grenade overwhelmed the terrorists while a squad of Turkish special forces repelled down from the skylight. Colonel Renda was beside them in minutes. Are either of you hurt, he asked. Well, aside from some hearing loss, I think we're okay, Doc responded. Get her dressed, Renda barked looking at Sophie as if she were contaminated. What the hell were you two do doing down here? Summoning demons, Doc said, and there they are. He gestured toward Khalil and his crew, who were backing away, still holding Iona with a knife to her throat, keeping together in a close knot while they made, made only one target. As the lights flashed on him, Khalil shouted, Don't try to stop us or the girl dies. We'll let him go, Renda said in a low voice. We've got a cookie on the girl. We've been tracking them. What about us? Any more work you need to do down here? Oh, we can finish it back at the hotel, Doc said. I'll post security for you, Renda said, in case you summon any more demons. And that is the end of Chapter 6. And now we begin Chapter 7, <clears throat> the revelations of Jezebel. And we have some preliminary poetry. We're in and out. Above, about, below, tis nothing but a magic shabby shadow show. Played in a box whose candle is the sun, round which we phantom figures can go. And that's my Omar Khayyam. Once settled back in the hotel, Doc fixed each of them a drink of single malt scotch on the rocks. And, of course, the Phaeton, the Phaeton Hotel catered to European clientele. While Sophie took a shower, she emerged from the bathroom, still damp in a white terry cloth robe, and sat down beside him on the divan. I hope I didn't wash away all my visions. I can't remember anything, she said. We may have to do it all over again, if Colonel Rendell will provide security. <clears throat> we'll be pushing our luck. Did you see the look on his face when he saw your body art? I was joking about summoning demons, but he wasn't. No, your visions are still there. We'll recover them with hypnosis. After they finished their drinks and cigarettes, Doc set the lamp of truth on a side table and sat Toby, Sophie on a chair facing the lamp, which he lit and set in motion. He took the robe off her shoulders and brought it down to her waist, asking her to sit up straight and breathe deeply while concentrating on the lamp. He then directed her consciousness through her body, starting from with her feet and up to, up to the pelvis, relaxing all the muscles, tendons, and ligaments all the way up the backbone to her neck and down the shoulder to her arms and hands until she was completely relaxed while still sitting erect. He placed his fingertips on a solar symbol 
of her heart chakra tattooed on her chest, and he said, breathe in the golden light of the sun, fill your heart center with energy. He moved his fingertips down to the solar plexus, saying, now move that golden energy down to the Venus center, in the center of, in the sphere of nature, and then down to the sphere of Mercury, his fingers just above her navel, then down to the lunar sphere of memory where the visions are recorded, and his fingers stopped just above her sex, for the mesmeristic technique did not involve sexual stimulation. Sophie, are you in? You saw it, Doc Asker. Yes, she replied. Can you recall your visions from the catacombs? Yes, she replied. What did you learn? I learned that I was responsible for my Lord's death on the cross. Who told you that? Simon. Simon Magus, she blurted out. Explain that to me. I don't understand, Doc asked. She was shivering. This was obviously painful for her, and Doc wondered if he ought to release her from his request. But she bravely continued, Simon and Jesus were good friends. They had been fellow students in Alexandria. Simon helped Jesus carry his cross that day, and Simon had asked him, Why are you letting them do this to you? You have the seventh power. You are a more powerful magician than I ever was or could be. Why are you letting them do this to you? And my Lord Jesus answered, I gave up the seventh power so that you could have. Mary wanted an heir, and I thought Father Earl would be pleased. But I forgot that my Father in heaven is not the God of the Jews. They have no afterlife. They do, but they don't know it, Simon said. Yahweh is the demiurge. He keeps them enslaved lifetime after lifetime. Don't make my mistake, Simon, Jesus told him. Don't ever give up the seventh power. And this is what Simon reported to me. And I was determined to teach this as the inner secret of the sacred marriage, only for the pneumatics of the Christian faith. Sophie slumped in her chair, and Doc decided to bring her out of a trance. This was enough for one night. The other visions were still there and could be unlocked later, and he wanted to see if his own inspiration about the Lamb of Truth was valid. When she was recovered, he explained to her that he had had his own inspiration during her dance about the Lamp of Truth that he wanted to check out. Get out your photostat of the Prester John letter and spread it out on the table, he asked her. And while she was doing that, he set about dismantling the lamp, removing the perforated copper cylinder. He was very carefully pried it open and spread it out. He used a thick telephone directory to weigh it down and press it flat revealing a rectangle of exactly the same dimensions as the Prester John letter. Voila, Doc explained. A series of words were clearly delineated in the pattern of slots that had been cut in the copper sheet. The lamp of truth had yielded its secret. Now all we have to do is translate it, Doc said. Sophie moved in close, her robe, her robe hung open. Enough work for tonight. It's playtime, she purred. And that is the end of chapter 8, uh, the end of chapter 7. And we begin chapter 8, The Subterranean World. And that has some preliminary poetry. 
They say the lion and the lizard keep the courts where Yamshi glorified and drank deep, and Baram, that great hunter, the wild ass, stamps over his head, and he lies fast asleep, and that too is by Omar Khayyam. Doc Rowland had been an adventurer long enough to appreciate the kind of women who liked to hang out with adventurers. Like the men they bonded with, the closer they got to death, the more alive they felt, and the hotter they became sexually. It was four o'clock in the morning before they finally got to sleep. And eight in the morning, they were awakened by the telephone. It was Colonel Renda. Have you cracked the code? Not yet, Doc growled. We've been celebrating. Celebrating what? Being alive. I'll pick you up at noon for lunch. Roger that, Doc growled again. Are we going to share any more intel with him? Sophie mumbled. Uh, maybe with him, but not with Istanbul. Will you make coffee? If you give me a kiss, she purred. Doc looked at all five foot ten inches of her, while she looked at all ten inches of him. Get up and make coffee, he ordered. Yes, sir, she said and saluted. After coffee and the last of the baklava, they got to work. Once the registration marks on the corners of Prester John's letter were lined up with the corners of the lamp of truth's copper sleeve, the Latin words of the coded message showed up in the rectangular slots. In Cavernus sub Ecclesia, Sancti Gregori, Iasit, Theorsis, Prestorius, Johannes. The, secret, the sequence translated thus, in caverns beneath the church of St. Gregory lies the treasure of Prester John. But where is the Church of St. Gregory, Sophie wondered. In Cappadocia, and much of that's underground, Roland observed. And how much of this do we share with Colonel Renda, Sophie wondered. Good question, Doc said. We have to get that gold out of Turkey, but we have to find it first. And we may need his help, and especially his protection. Well, Turkey does belong to NATO. They are on our side, she mused. I'm not sure what our side is anymore, Doc offered. Mythtech is an NGO, but the CIA doesn't run it. Palescu does, and he runs your boyfriend Khalil, and God knows what else. Renda said he had a cookie on that girl, Leona, Sophie remembered. I hope she's still alive. Well, he'll be here in ten minutes. There was a knock at their door. He's early, Doc said. Doc opened the door. Colonel Renda's scowling face boded ill. The girl's dead. Drug overdose, she snarled. They drugged her and raped her to death. He handed the earrings to Sophie from your boyfriend, even Iblis. He knew they were yours. Sophie closed her fist on the earrings. Her eyes welled with tears. She was so innocent, she murmured. So are we all, Renda observed, as he moved to the center of the room and put a large valise on the coffee table. He opened the case and erected a copper wire-wrapped tube topped with a copper sphere. Then he unbound a long power cord and found an outlet on the wall. When he plugged it in, he flipped a switch in the valise, and the unit began to hum and vibrate. He pointed his finger at the copper sphere, and an electric blue spark crackled from his finger to the fingertip to the copper ball. Tesla coil, he informed so we can have privacy. This room is bugged. And after they released Ibn Iblis, I don't trust Istanbul. Doc was really upset. 
he didn't crush Istanbul either, and Khalil's people were on the loose. He should have checked the room out the way he had been doing it all along. Things were moving too fast, but that was no excuse. Things always move too fast. I'm afraid we're compromised, he reluctantly declared. How so, Rinda asked. Well, Sophie and I decoded Prester John's letter, and I vocalized the location of the treasure. It's under the Church of St. Gregory in Cappadocia. Khalil is, is probably almost there by now. The points of Renda's black handlebar mustache almost came together over the bridge of his hawk nose as his facial features twisted in a thought-provoking squint. Did the letter specify Cappadocia, he asked. No, just the Church of St. Gregory, Doc said. Renda began to chuckle. Ha, 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 that he's going to the wrong place. The ancient capital of Prester John. And that's where we will end for tonight. And we'll, we'll, we will, in a couple of weeks, we'll have another, we'll have another chapter and you'll find out more about where the Prester, where the treasure of Prester John is. And, uh, I hope that you enjoyed this. That's really what I used to do before I became a magician is I wrote adventure stories and adventure novels. And if you enjoyed this one, you will certainly like Tower of Darkness, which also involves a treasure, uh, Solomon's Seal. And you can get Tower of Darkness at pokerunion.com. And uh, so certainly visit our bookstore. And we also have another magical adventure novel, and Adamson's Quest and Shamgar the Purple Dragon. Anyway, next week we'll be back with another hermetic mystery, and until then, good magic.